Hi there, my name is Paddy Butler, and this podcast is brought to you from Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. Author of Multitudes, Lucy Caldwell and Dana Kapnick were in Liberia for our new Nostalgias event a couple of weeks ago, and we made a live recording for this edition of the podcast. I really love Kapnick's debut novel, The Falconer, which really punches with a ruling energy all of its own. But before that, I've got a few gems to recommend. Chikozi Obioma is well known for his Booker shortlist as The Fisherman, and he's done it again with an orchestra of minorities. A sprawling epic with nods to Milton and Dante, it follows an odyssey-like journey of farmer Chinonzo Solomon Olissa of the Nigerian Igbo people. There's two recently published gems by Fitzgerald editions, a little imprint that we've always been fond of, always supported them. Uh, Axiomatic by Maria Tumarkin, Liberia favorite and author of the wonderful book Constellations, Sinead Gleason gives praise to Tumarkin's writing. Quote, In taking injustice and the legacy of trauma, global, cultural, personal, as her subject, Maria Tumarkin's writing embodies how form and content can osmose. And Gleason goes on to say, Axiomatic is an extraordinary inquiry into humanity. Also, The Fallen by Carlos Manuel Alvarez is published by the same imprint and is an unsettling portrait of Cuba and cross-generational tension. So we're checking that out as well. Just we're checking out the whole uh, back catalogue of of Fitzgerald editions. We're big supporters of those, as as I've already said. But now let's listen to the brilliant duo of Lucy Caldwell and Dana Kapnick. Leathered and weathered and pockmarked and laugh-lined. No, it's not a face. It's a big round world with crevices and ravines slithering across tectonic plates. I bounce the world hard on the blacktop and it comes back into my hand covered with a fine layer of New York City diamond dust. Pavement shards, glass, crystallized exhaust from the West Side Highway, and it feels like a man's stubble or what I imagine stubble might feel like against my palm, and it's a face again. I bounce the face and it's back in my hand and it's something else. A sun, a red terrestrial planet, an equidimensional spheroid made of cowhide and filled with nitrogen and oxygen. Whatever it is, whatever I imagine it to be, I know it holds some kind of magical power. There's Percy on my periphery, limbs like a wind chime in a hurricane. He's open in the passing lane, woo-woo's for the ball, but I got this. I've had the touch all game. I'm dribbling the sun nice and low by my ankles like it's bobbing over and under the horizon. No way am I passing it. Dude guarding me has the sometime goods of a former college baller. A powerful drive to the basket, but knees that only work every other play. No match for the Skywalker in me. I'm smaller, but I'm way quicker with a scary first step and lean, taut muscles I've got absolute faith in. I take him on easy, leave him flat-footed and salty as I blow by. I pull up and launch a rainbow from a spot in the low atmosphere where gravity is diluted. The red planet flies through the chain-link net without touching a thing, as though it's been sucked into the perfect center of a black hole. Thwip, bounces on the blacktop court nice and gentle, puts a period on the pickup game win. My man just stands there, hands on his hips, shaking his head, looking at me, grinning goofy, Sweat, like, seriously pouring off his face. Inner me is hardcore gloating, but I'm keeping it cool on the inside, on the outside. I love schooling geezers who mistake me for an easy mark. Girl, he goes, you the real thing. You the real thing. 
And he takes my hand and pulls my whole body into his, smacks my back three times, giving me a genuine but sweaty bro hug. There's only one place in the whole universe where a pizza bagel, a Jewish and Italian mutt girl, might get that exact compliment from a middle-aged black guy. 40 degrees latitude and negative 73 degrees longitude. Find it on your atlas. Ball hog, Percy shouts as he ambles over, making music as he moves. He dangles his lily white arm with its random pale brown freckle clusters over my shoulders and whines, I was open, man. So was I. But all I do is smirk at him as if to say, tough shit. Jackass looks even better to me when he's pissed, even with his patchy, scraggly attempt at a beard and the greasy hair he's growing out from the bowl cut he's had since he was five. Something about that potent combo of sweat and dracar noir and competitiveness just does it for me. The old dudes leave, citing the obvious excuses. Gotta get home, it's late, the wife, yeah, whatever. I know the real reason. No fun getting your asses handed to you by a couple of high school kids, especially when one of them is a 17-year-old girl. And I just want to, thank you. I just want to really quickly say too, because I should have said it before I started reading. Thank you so much to Lucy for, for being here and doing this event with, with me. Thank you so much to Faber and all of the people at Faber and, and this wonderful store library, which is really cool. So I just, and thank you all for coming too, so. Thank you. Um, so Updike, let's, 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 let's do Updike. Updike first. Yes. Um, opening of Rabbit Run. Yes. Basketball game. Yes. That's where this came from. Yes. So um, just really briefly, I thought it might be sort of give a little bit of a background of who I am. So obviously I'm from the United States. I grew up in New York, um, but I worked in sports for many, many years. And um, very early, I had no idea I wanted to be a fiction writer. I was working on the, I was working on the journalist, journalism side. And then I eventually switched to the dark side, which is marketing and PR. And um, in my early twenties, I read Rabbit Run for the first time. And for those of you who haven't read Rabbit Run by Updike, um, I personally love Updike, but I understand that he hasn't quite aged well. And Rabbit Engstrom in particular is a deeply insufferable character. Um, but the opening to Rabbit Run is just one of the most brilliant openings in all of literature, I believe. And the way that it opens is Rabbit Engstrom is about a 25-year-old man. It's, this, is, it, this takes place, I don't know, do you remember in the late 1950s, early 1960s? Yeah, and he's coming home and he's in his sort of suit. And he sees a smoking a cigarette, I think, even. And he sees a young group of boys playing a game of basketball. And he was a former high school standout basketball star. And he decides he wants to get in on the game. And they sort of doubt his abilities. And it, over the course of, I think, like three or four pages, maybe five, really short section um we learn everything there is to know about rabbit without any exposition it's all within the action of this basketball game and i fell in love with it immediately of course um and i thought it was just a brilliant piece of writing but i also thought there's just sort of very little at stake he's a 25 year old or something like that man who was a few years removed from high school and these couple of kids doubted his abilities and, but then he eventually proved them wrong and that's it. And I thought, wouldn't it be kind of so much more interesting if it was a young woman at the center of this? And so sort of as a thought experiment, I sort of wrote a little passage that eventually turned into the opening of this novel about having a young woman in the center of a pickup basketball game. And what does that do? What are the, how does this, how do the stakes change when it's a woman in that, in that, field and a woman doing that 
uh, playing basketball as opposed to a, a young man. So that's where the beginning of this novel came from. Was it originated with with Rabbit Run and reimagining that scene in some ways. And it's really hard to write well about sport. Um, you know, I'm thinking of the famous David Foster Wallace essays about Roger Federer and about how Tracy Austin broke my heart, mm-hmm. in which he talks about how sports players, when they're interviewed, and these days, you know, it happens, like you win Wimbledon and a second later, you've got you know, the mic in your face saying, how does That's it feel? The worst. And, and always, you know, people say things like... Um, Tracy Austin, after she'd won the US Open, she said, I immediately knew what I had done, which was win the US Open, and I was thrilled. <laughs> and as, um, as Foster Wallace puts it, he says, the baritones and network blazers keep coming up after games, demanding of physical geniuses, these recombinant strings of dead cliches. And he talks about how he uses the Greek term techne, and he says, if you're a great athlete, if you're in the moment, you're so in the moment, you're not thinking consciously, you're not thinking verbally, you're just doing it. And then it's impossible to translate that into something that's gripping on the page. Mm. But of course, there you are with your background in sports journalism and you were playing sports yourself. That's what you have to do. You have to make something like that rabbit, those stakes, even when you, right. when you, when you, line them out like that it doesn't sound like much but when you're reading that opening of rabbit run or when you're reading the opening of the falconer you have to feel all of that and you have to i mean i've heard you say that if you're describing a basketball game the technical difficulty is there are only so many words for shoot right. or hoop or ball or yes so can you talk a bit about that sure well first of all you're you're referencing two of my all-time favorite pieces of sports journalism um I love those David. I'm a huge tennis fan and I actually worked for the USTA. That was one of my jobs as a back in, back in my former life when I worked in sports and I love those essays. Um, yeah. Writing about sports after a while, it's hard to sort of, it's very easy to sort of lean on a lot of cliches. Um, but the, the thing, the thing about, so it's so different to write about sports when you are covering a sport versus when you have the freedom of fiction to be in the mind of a character who is playing. And and one of the reasons why I wanted, I mean, there are a number of reasons why I wanted to write a novel about a female athlete, but one of the main reasons was I was, I really was starting to feel very limited by being a sports writer and writing about matches and writing about, there's just very little freedom. At least for me, there are a lot of really wonderful sports journalists who are able to be very creative with their writing. But for me personally, I found very limited by the form. And I really enjoyed getting in the head of an athlete and being able to just make it up. You can just make it up. That's the beautiful part about fiction. So were you a basketball player yourself? I was a a terrible... Well, here's how I describe myself as a basketball player. I was a solidly mediocre basketball player. And that is not an exaggeration solidly mediocre. Um, but I didn't think it would be very interesting to write a novel about a solidly mediocre basketball player. So instead I made her, I made Lucy be a really, really incredible basketball player, which is significantly more interesting. I think it is really interesting. I was thinking, I was trying to come up with a list of authors who've written really great female athletes. And I had, um, a Leanne Shapton, you know, I love her swimming studies. I particularly love Leanne Shapton because until I was about 16, I was a competitive swimmer. Ah. Um, so I, you know, trained so much and I swam and I did the galas and I did all, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and I gave up at the point at which if you were to be really good, you really need to start doing, you know, all the early morning training and all yes. that sort of thing. So, um, but yeah, I love Leanne Shapton. Um, 
and the way she writes about bodies and water and the the drill of it the boring you know because so much of it you're just doing like length after length after length after length uh Megan Abbott I love as well she writes so well about um cheerleading and gymnastics and and these especially very young women who are pushing their bodies to the limits of what they can do and the the adrenaline and the female friendships and rivalries and Rebecca Gilman is a US playwright that I love who Mm -hmm. has written a play called The Sweetest Swing in Baseball about baseball I sort of I ran out yeah there's you know there there aren't very many women writers writing sports and there aren't very many writing women elite athletes right no that's very true and I will admit that I actually have uh, Megan Abbott I've heard of Mm -hmm. um but I didn't know a lot of the people who you've mentioned so I I have I have some reading to do um but yeah and honestly truthfully there's actually really not a lot of novels with athletes at the center period, not just female athletes, but also male athletes. There's really only a handful of real, uh, of, of novels that I can think of off the top of my head, um, where this, where the, one of the main characters is, is an elite athlete. Um, but yes, I think there is a bit of a hole. And I think, uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to write from the perspective of a female athlete is because there was a lot of things that I could explore in ways that didn't feel um, didactic or preachy um, that I could explore through just plain action mm-hmm. that I wouldn't be able to do if I didn't have the, 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 have the sort of the, fl- the framework of sport, of, mm-hmm. of basketball. Um, and that's just sort of the way that women move through space. And it's interesting that you bring up those, I mean, I'm not familiar with their work, so I can't really speak to them, but the the um, the sports that they're writing about is a very different kind of those are very different kind of sports mm-hmm. than basketball, which is a team sport, and it mm-hmm. also is it tends to be particularly in the early '90s is a very macho sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was there are certain things that you can it's you know one of the things that one of the reasons why tennis a tennis player is such a fascinating. Uh, such a fascinating character to examine in fiction is because it's a person alone on one end mm-hmm. of the court and you can really, you can get into a person's mind and the psyche what it's like to be alone on that side of the court facing facing your opponent and facing these these incredibly fast And also balls. tennis, you can see the psychological warfare play out. Totally. You can see someone just lose it and, and, and you can see them falter and then lose right. everything. But whereas in a team sport, mm-hmm. there isn't that. You have to you have to function within a group, mm-hmm. and it, depending on what that group is, you function differently. And so, in this particular in this book, there are three basketball scenes. So there aren't a lot of for those of you who aren't particularly interested in basketball, don't feel as though this book is entirely about basketball because it's actually really not. I always say that basketball is sort of the plate on which the story is served. It's not the meal. Yeah, um, I know nothing, absolutely nothing about basketball, and you know, <laughs> it's it's gripping. That's what that's what really good writing about sports can can do it can instantly make you invested in the stakes of it even if you don't know the rules even if you don't know anything about what's going on and the three basketball games that take place in this book one of which you sort of heard a a little bit from um are sort of represent three different sides to this character and her development and in each in each game she's in a different situation with different teammates so and and her and who she is sort of changes in each one of those scenarios um and in a a way that I don't know 
I mean, obviously you, if you're playing tennis or if you're, if you're swimming in a, if you're swimming, if you're competing as an individual, depending on what the competition is and who you're facing, you have to adjust and change, but who you are ultimately, what you're doing, your strategy is sort of the same. Whereas when you're playing within a team setting, you have to really adjust in order to make way for other people's egos, you know? Well, let's talk about, let's move slightly sideways from the basketball and the sports. Let's talk about desire. Okay. Because one of the really interesting things as well about this novel is we have a young woman and we have, it's really interesting reading a young woman whose body is her instrument and who's confident in her, in, in her, in her use of her body. She's confident in the space that she takes up on the court, in the world, walking through those 90s New York streets. I mean, we're going to come to that. It's a different New York than today. But it's because it's a coming of age story as well. We've already met Percy, Mm -hmm. who she loves. And it's interesting the way you write that incipient and burgeoning desire and someone coming to know the other things that their body can do, its capacities, its its limitations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I really wanted to write, well, first of all, one of the things that I really wanted to write was a coming of age novel. And you do this as well. Um, a coming of not coming of age novel about a young woman who, where nothing really bad happens to her. That's I think actually shockingly rare. I think a lot of times coming of age novels about women is oftentimes the way that they come of age is through some sort of abusive in some way experience. Um, and it was really important to me that Lucy does not have that experience that she has the freedom to, um, because of that, she has the freedom to become, um, to sort of self-actualize through just wandering and thinking and wondering in the same way that so many of our beloved young men who have come of age in literature have been able to do. So, but I also did not want to ignore the thing that most adolescents go through, which is uh, a suddenly, a deep, desire and longing for another person um and so she has she has a deep crush on her best friend Percy who is um who is a confusing confounding character for her and he is the heir to a very a very wealthy prominent New York family um and he's sort of a bit of a cad and a player and she likes him despite that and he has positive qualities too, or some, at least I think so. Perhaps not every reader does. Um, and I just thought it was, it would be, I, I, I can't, I don't, I can't imagine writing a story about a young woman coming of age without having it, there be a, some sort of a romantic interest, but not having her entire life be defined by whatever happens with that romantic interest. So yeah, I hope that sort of answers the question. <laughs> yeah, the sort of the subplot yes. in this novel, which she's coming of age and she's she's dis- discovering who she is and falling in love and all these things that we would expect of a coming of age novel. Uh, she's got a cousin, yes. Violet, who's an artist, who's a feminist artist, yes, um, who is producing, who's producing this radical work and getting Lucy to question mm-hmm. all these things that she's taken for granted and you've got uh Lucy's mother as well mm-hmm. and the question running through the novel of how is she going to define herself in relation to her mother right. and in relation to this it, it, she's a new wave of feminists she's yes. trying to negotiate all these things as well 
Um, the epigraph to your novel comes from Simone de Beauvoir. Will you read yes. that for us? I sure will. And then because this is another very important thread that's yes. running through. Yeah, and I want and I want to talk about this for sure. Okay, so um, Simone de Beauvoir uh, makes several appearances in this novel, um, and the first one she makes is in the epigraph from, and it's from the second sex. Today, it is becoming possible for the girl to take her future in her hands instead of putting it in those of a man. If she is absorbed by studies, sports, a professional training, or a social and political activity, she frees herself from the male obsession. She is less preoccupied by love and sexual conflicts. However, she has a harder time than the young man in accomplishing herself as an autonomous individual. Neither her family nor customs assist her attempts. Besides, even if she chooses independence, she still makes a place in her life for the man, for love. She will often be afraid of missing her destiny as a woman if she gives herself over entirely to any undertaking. She does not admit this feeling to herself, but it is there. It distorts all her best efforts. It sets up limits. And, you know, the thing that I love about that little excerpt is that I don't actually remember the year that The Second Sex was written. Maybe, what, 1958, I want to say, something like that. Um, somewhere around there. I think that that paragraph is still really true. Uh, you know, I think that that is a longing that... Really? Was that 1949. Far? Yeah, That's I checked that out. Yeah, um, I had the same you, question. Yes. I, I, I double-checked. Yeah, because I think that it's a, I think it's still a very real feeling, a very true thing. Um, that And so, and I mean, look, there's so many statistics. So, so many of the things that are, that, that are, that whether it's biology or whether it's just desire or whatever it is, that we want, not just as women, men too, but but I think in particular women um, oftentimes um, are at war with what we should be fighting for politically. Like for instance, all of the studies out there sort of are beginning to show that for women, marriage and children are deeply, are not beneficial in the way that they are for men. Women, once, once women get married and have kids, and I, please don't quote me on these exact, <laughs> I don't know statistics off the top of my head, but I've read many studies where, you know, if women get married and have children, they start making less money. Oftentimes they drop out of the workforce and they become a, a far, their, their lives become much more stagnant. But, but most women aren't saying, well, I don't want to have children or get married because of that. Most women, you know, if, if that's what they want, that's, um, they, th those statistics aren't stopping them is my point. And um, what this book is sort of wrestling with is that um, it's the Lucy's generation and our generation are the first generation of women to we're essentially the grand we're the guinea pigs of the grand feminist experiment. We're the first generation to have been born, and you know some of the these time the time frames are different depending on which country you're from. But in the United States, we're the first generation to be born with access to safe abortions, to birth control. In, in 1972, landmark legislation called Title IX was passed, where women were offered the same amount of. Um, um, uh, Title IX basically meant that any school, whether it's university, high school, whatever, that's that's receiving government funding, has to um, give the same amount of money towards men as they do towards women. So the, the 1972. Um, women had to get the same amount of college scholarships as men, which really affected the way that women's sports in college, um, uh, the way that it was organized, because a lot of the college scholarships 
Before that, we're going to male athletes. And so once, nine, once Title IX was passed, they had to give equal amount of dollars to female athletes. And that's one of the reasons why the U.S. women are often so dominant um, because from 1972 on, um, we, they've been like there's been sort of this groundswell of making sure that women are playing sports in college because in order for men to get that money, they had to have the same amount of women doing sports as men. Anyway, um, so there's an, oh, and, and in 1976, that was the first year uh, that women were allowed to have a credit card in their own name, purchase a home in their own name, and not in their husband's name or their father's name. So Lucy was, has been born into this as as were we, um, born into this whole brand new world where we had all of these rights. And at the same time, it takes a little while for the culture to catch up with all of these new things. And so, so for one of the things that I was interested in writing about is um, I think of this book as being in conversation with the feminist movement, or rather with feminism. Um, it's not necessarily a, this is exactly what you should be thinking about feminism. Um, this is a person who is grappling with all of these different warring things that are that's actually part of real life. It's not, um, you know, the, the political movements are something that is important in terms of driving the culture forward. But as an individual, you can't always follow every single piece of what a movement is is sort of laying out for you. And so she's wrestling with all of that. And um, the, the characters of Violet and Max. So Violet is her cousin. And Violet is a 25-year-old a artist living in an artist of, of uh, a feminist artist collective on the Lower East Side with her roommate Max for, for Maxine, who's a significantly more outgoing, radical feminist artist. She has, she's made a, 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 an American flag made out of dildos called Old Glory Hole. Um, for those of you who don't know, Old Glory is the nickname for the American flag. Um, I, I'm not going to tell you what a glory hole is. If you don't know, you'll have to look it up. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's an American expression or not. Anyway, um, and uh, so, uh, and they sort of represent like a, a bit more of a radicalized view of of the feminism of the time. They're sort of like riot girl feminist, um, sort of what was coming out of the punk scene. And her mom is was part of the second wave. And but she wound up opting out and had to leave her job and wound up being a stay-at-home mom. And so Lucy has a conversation with her mother about that. And Lucy sort of makes this sort of declarative statement to herself, not to her mom, that she would never make a choice like that. Um and so none of these things are answered, or I hope at least none of these things are tied up in a bow, but it's just something that I think we all And of course, she's aware with. as well that she only has these privileges because if she was a daughter of an immigrant, right, or a recent course. immigrant, first generation immigrant, yes. or if she was a daughter of someone who worked multiple jobs in the service industries, there wouldn't be the choice to right. give up work or totally. to let your career stagnate. You yes. would be doing your three jobs and getting the neighbours to look after your kids. And, and so she's aware, she's self-aware enough to have that knowledge of her privileged position. Yes, totally. Yes. She wrestles with that too. And there's a character in the novel that she sort of has a relationship with that sort of opens her eyes to some of that as well. Yes, very much so. She She's thinking about it all. Um, she's thinking about all of the different ways 
um, women, particularly of that era, sort of had to make impossible choices. Um, you, you made one choice or, or you were forced into impossible choices based on your circumstance. Um, so, yeah. And it's an interesting generation. I don't know if any of you heard um, Dana and Lauren Laverne this morning, but you were, you were talking very interestingly about this particular generation. You know, I remember the moment <laughs> that the analog generation became digital. Yeah. I can pinpoint it exactly. I was 17 and had just passed my driving test. And so my parents bought me a mobile phone and um, it was like, you know, one of those little bricks that the messages scrolled across like letter by letter. Um, this will not mean anything to Dana, but for any of the rest of you, its number was 0403 700 872. This is like before numbers got standardized to 07 as they all are in the country. Like this was, and so I had a mobile phone and both of my sisters who are like two years and two years younger than me also crucially some might say unfairly, <laughs> had a mobile phone. And this meant that up until that point, um, you know, if you wanted to speak to a friend, you had to have the phone in your hand. Even a couple of years before that, you had to have the phone cord like pulled as taut as it would go to try to get through the door of somewhere where someone might not hear you. Um, I remember making lists of what I could possibly say to keep the conversation going in the unlikely, as it turned out, impossible event that a boy might ever phone me up to ask me if I wanted to go out and do something. <laughs> um, for my sisters, none of this interactions changed completely because you could just send a text yes. um, very quickly. This is also the moment at which um, households would have one phone line that you had to unplug and then plug in if you wanted to use the internet. So if you were trying to phone your friend and you got the engaged signal, then someone in their house is on the... But very quickly, within... I mean, we're talking within the space of a couple of years, suddenly all that had changed. But we are the last generation to come of age in that analogue yes. world. Um, and as your novel, um, as you say, your novel is set in a particular New York of this particular phase of feminism... Um, before 9-11, mm -hmm. before all these mass shootings mm -hmm. that are so horribly prevalent in the US yes. have started to become commonplace. So it's a very interesting, those boundaries, it's interesting to put those in place and look at that world. Yes. Yeah, I was really, I, I think that, so our tiny little generation is really, really overlooked in some ways. Yeah. Um, and we're, and and, you know, even Jen... Because we're Jen, not... I mean, technically, I am technically a millennial by, like, six months. I'm not... What what year were you 81. born? 81. Oh, okay. So you're a little bit younger than me. I was born in okay. 79. So I am not... I, nobody really knows what I am. It depends on which list you look at. Which, like, the like Pew puts me with Gen X and some other standard place puts me with millennial. Um, and I think in particular, I think if you were born in 77, it's like even more, you know, Lucy's born in 76. It's even more complicated. Who, who, who do you belong to? Um, and the thing is, is that the, the Gen X generation in particular, they were born in the midst of the Vietnam War. So they're very, and, 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 you know, in the summer of love. So they have like a very, um, they had a very different early childhood than those of us who were born after the Vietnam War. And so though technically, I guess I'm part of, and certainly mentality, I'm much more Gen X than millennial. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's this sort of like nebulous, hard to define, but I find that particular moment of time really interesting because of all of these transitional moments that we were experiencing. Um, and I think, and, and we are, we grew up alongside 
particularly in America, we grew up alongside um, neoliberalism, which is an which was created by which was created by baby boomers, which also created the pop culture. I could go on for a really long time about baby boomers, so I should probably keep it to a minimum. But um, uh, especially since this is going to be a podcast, um, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe my parents might listen to this. Um, but. Uh, they, you know, they created the culture that we grew up in. They created the magazines. They created the rock music. They created all of the, and they also created a mythology around their experience that I felt that I grew up in the shadow of. Brilliant stuff there from Dana and Lucy. Great to have them on and great to hear that live from Liberia. As always, check out full cultural program listings at secondhome.io. See you next time.